So for those of you who don't know me, my name's June, and um, it's my privilege to be able to speak with you this morning. So I'm going to start off with a question. How are you at counting? It's an odd question, I know. Mind's website, you know the charity Mind, and they state that one in four people will experience some kind of mental health issue every year in England. Now, you might notice yourself counting along the row. Four, three, two, one. Yeah, I did think he was looking a bit down when he came in. It's the only time that our sinful nature doesn't want us to be number one. We, we want to count ourselves as immune to the issue of mental health, and we want to count those who experience mental health issues as being weak or having failed in some way, because it's just safer for us to think like that. We have a problem with our counting. We want to think that mental health issues only happen outside of the church, or at very least outside of our close circle of family and friends. But mental health is part of life in just the same way as physical health issues are. Over the course of our lives, one in five of us will have suicidal thoughts, and one in 15 of us will attempt suicide. This is serious stuff. It's far more common than we want to believe. Now, Mental health and spiritual well-being are not the same thing. I want to be really clear about that here. But if we were to picture a Venn diagram, you know the diagrams with the circles and the overlaps. So if we imagine one circle being mental health and one circle being spiritual well-being, for want of a better phrase, it's the bit that overlaps that's the bit we're going to focus in on. And um, this is the first part in a three-part mini-series where we'll be thinking about these sorts of issues. I want to be really clear as we start that this is not going to be a series of messages which says, pray harder, fast, memorize scripture, and then God will give you good mental health. That's not what we're looking at here. And actually, I want to say, if you've been in a church situation where you've been taught that kind of thing, where you've been, um, you've, perhaps you've experienced mental health issues and there's a suggestion that that's a, about a failure on your part, or that if you just try harder, you'll improve your, your mental health. I'm so sorry that you've had that message. I don't believe that that's a reflection of God's heart towards us. So... I think when we think about mental health and a a gospel um, approach to mental health, we have to recognize that it's about grace rather than our own works. So this is how I suggest that we're going to approach this series, that today we'll think about our need for security. Uh, Session two, which will be in a few weeks' time, we'll think about our need for self-worth. And then the final session, we'll think about our need for significance. Uh, Those three issues are addressed in this book called These Three Things. Um, And I think it's in those three areas that we see this overlap between mental health and spiritual well-being. It certainly isn't all of mental health and it isn't all of spiritual well-being. 
but it's in those touching points in these two domains that I think we've got some scope to explore something hopefully helpful. And I want to say that each of those needs, the need for significance, the need for security, the need for self-worth, they're all absolutely legitimate needs. But it's, it's when we're looking to have those needs and they're outside of our relationship with God that we then start to open ourselves up to greater vulnerability to things like stress and anxiety, that kind of thing. So, we'll come to um, our first session today um, and we'll come to our, our Bible reading. So if you um, would like a Bible, if you, um, I think people are going to hand out the, the church Bibles um, now. And so our reading, it's nice and easy to find today, it's in Genesis, <laughs> so right at the start. So it's page 32, and the reference is uh, it's Genesis 29, verses 31 to 35. Okay. So Genesis 29, 31 to 35, it reads... When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time... I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we, uh, as we think about that, let's, let's start with a prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we gather around your word and we long to hear from you this morning. Lord, let this not be just my words. Because of our great need and your great mercy, Lord, this morning I want to pray a big prayer. I want to pray that you would be at work within us this morning, that you would come and bring healing, that you would bring powerful revelation of your truth, that that would so speak to us, that it would transform us, that it would heal us and set us free and cause us to become more like Jesus, so to be able to live lives that glorify you. Lord, come, have your way. We choose to be open to what you would want to do in our lives this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who like to know where we're going within a message, um, we're going to hit three points. Identity, identifying, and in deeds. So the first point, identity. 
<clears throat> what lengths will we go to in order to feel loved? For many of us, we can sing right along with meatloaf. We would do anything for love. And it's true, isn't it? We get ourselves into unhealthy and unhelpful relationships, accepting the unacceptable. We try to um, bend over backwards to prove that we're worthy of love. We starve ourselves, we dress to please, we put ourselves through surgery for that chance that we might be loved. And can't you hear Leah's cry through all of that? That strong drive, that need to be loved, the, the gnawing and intolerable anxiety that you're not loved. For anybody who doesn't know that story, Jacob had wanted to marry Leah's younger and prettier sister, Rachel. But Rachel and Leah's dad tricks Jacob into marrying Leah, thinking that he's marrying Rachel, and then Jacob marries Rachel as well. I mean, Jeremy Kyle, eat your heart out. It doesn't take a genius to work out that this doesn't lead to, and they all lived happily ever after. Leah knows that she's second best in her husband's eyes. Rachel hasn't been able to have children, but because God sees that Leah isn't loved, he enables her to conceive. And with each child, what keeps Leah going is this hope, this longing, that this next child might be the child that causes her husband to love her. It's so much a part of her drive that it um, impacts the identity, the name of each of those sons. If the Bible that you're reading has footnotes, you'll see that each of the meanings of each of those names relates to her desire to be loved by her husband. And each time she's disappointed until she has Judah and the pattern changes. Instead of saying, this time my husband will love me, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read, then Leah stopped having children, I experienced something of a relief. Thank goodness, Leah, that you don't have to keep going through this angst all of the time. At least for a time, Leah finds something in her relationship with God which satisfies that strong desire to be loved. She's content in her relationship with God and she stops pursuing the love of her husband. Maybe for us, it isn't about romantic love. Maybe it's about trying to win the love of friends or the love and approval of family members, parents even. Perhaps it's about trying to succeed academically or financially in order to prove yourself worthy of someone's love. The sense that we are unloved or unlovable can feel really unsafe. It leaves us feeling insecure. It might feel as though it literally isn't possible to survive being unloved. It's literally intolerable. For others of us, the prospect of winning and then ultimately losing love just feels way too dangerous too risky, leaves us feeling too vulnerable. And so rather than chasing after and pursuing love, we shut ourselves 
away from it. We just try to do without it. And neither of those positions is God's best for us. Neither is what God would have us do, have us function in that way. If we go right back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve, we recognize that we're created, we're designed to be in that loving relationship with God, to have those emotional needs met in our relationship with God. But that doesn't mean that by default, every Christian has all of their needs met within their relationship with God and floats through life effortlessly that wasn't effortless to say that, effortlessly, within a bubble of security. We'd be naive and foolish to claim that that was the case. 1 John 4.16, I'm sure many of you know this verse, says God is love. And it's always fascinated me that that verse doesn't say God is loving. God is love. That's who he is. You can't separate out God and love. If the God that you pray to isn't love himself, love personified, that's not the God of the Bible. So you might even find it helpful to just kind of check in with yourself. We're so familiar, aren't we, with these words, God loves you, God is love, that we don't then tend to engage with those phrases in meaningful ways. When we come to God in prayer or in worship, beyond thinking that we're approaching a loving God, are we actually recognizing that we're coming to love himself? There's a word that we often associate with the start of a wedding. Dearly beloved. Dearly beloved. And it sounds quite a dated word now, so our Bibles don't tend to translate it in that way, but the meaning is still absolutely there. It refers to those who are loved, those who be loved now. Not in the future when we've cleaned ourselves up and fixed ourselves, but right here right now, we are loved, dearly loved. It's so intrinsically part of who we are, part of our identity, that it's how we're addressed in Scripture. So to try to remove this aspect of our identity would be akin to trying to remove the writing in a stick of rock. Okay, it's really part of who we are. Our belovedness runs all the way through us. It's what Paul describes in Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, did you notice that? nor anything else in all creation, what might that include? Neither fear of not being good enough, nor grappling with addictions, nor anxiety or depression, nor the things done to you behind closed doors, nor the distorted words spoken over you, nor the names you've been called, nor the shame-inducing memories that pop into your mind nor the way you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing 
can separate us from God's love. Okay, so God is love and we are the beloved. That's who he is, that's who we are. But what difference does it make? And now we're thinking about this idea of identifying. I used to do a bit of Amdram. It's one of the things I wrote on our list today of interest, theatre. Um, in the theatre, there's a real thing about finding your light. You don't want to be doing something really significant and important on stage, but be in a dark corner where no one can see. Um, so I remember... Uh, a moment in one of the productions where I was just me on stage, a beautiful ball gown, a grand staircase, and a belting solo. And at those points, you've got to be in the light. You've got to find your light. So here's an image that I sometimes use to help me to think about this idea of um, the impact of God's love, and I hope that this is helpful for you. Being in the light on stage is a bit like living in light of God's love, living in the knowledge and awareness of God's love. It's possible, isn't it, for us to step out of that light. So the light's still there. God is still loving us. We're just not in it. We're not being illuminated by the knowledge and awareness of the love that God has for us at that point. God remains absolutely constant in his love. We need that light to illuminate us. To know that you are loved, it's a wonderful thing. It's transformative, isn't it? It's a game changer. To know you are loved is a game changer. We hear a lot in society today about identifying as various things, and what we mean by that is, this is what I know about myself. This is something that's really significant, which defines who I am. We've already established that our identity is beloved, but what if we were to identify as beloved? What if, as we thought about ourselves, what defined us in our own thinking is that we are dearly loved by God. What if that's what we most know about ourselves? I remember a number of years ago being in a, um, a home group where we were discussing how the disciple John describes himself as the disciple Jesus loves. And uh, it was quite a heated discussion because people were saying, well, it sounds really boastful. How dare he say, I'm the disciple Jesus loved? But I was listening to that and thinking, no, this is a game changer. It really is. I truly believe if we each had a from the gut knowing of ourselves as the disciple Jesus loved, as the beloved, I think it would change the way we experience life. And we're not boasting by saying that we are beloved of God, by saying that we are the disciple Jesus loved, we are simply agreeing with God. We're simply saying, yes, Lord, I believe that you love me. I rely on the love you have for me. There comes a point in Leah's story where her yearning to be loved is met in her relationship with God, but it wasn't and it isn't a constant experience. We can so easily lose sight of the wonder and truth of God's love for us, and we step out 
of that light. We step out of the awareness, the knowledge of God's love for us. And sadly, Leah does end up back in that trap of pursuing her husband's love. We can be in and out of the knowledge and awareness of God's love and that sense of contentment. We have those wonderful moments of clarity. Everything makes sense, but it isn't all of our experience. So you might want to, as you go through life, as you go through your day, just to have a bit of a check-in with yourself. Am I, at this moment, functioning out of an awareness of God's love for me? Is that how I identify myself at this moment, as loved by God? Again, this isn't about works. It's not about us trying hard to be loved by God. Our part is simply to rest in and rely on God's love in the same way that we would rest in and rely on a comfortable armchair. Now, there are a few um, kind of traps or uh, challenges in terms of thinking through God's love for us. Uh, Perhaps we get things a little bit distorted from time to time. So one way of distorting this is God loves us so much that he just doesn't care about our sin. Like that he's almost blind to it just because he's overwhelmed by love for us. And I think we know deep down that that's not the case and it leaves us feeling a bit unsafe. So that doesn't seem to fit. The other kind of risky um, path to take is to believe, well, okay, you say that God is a loving God and I do believe that for other people Um, But if God really knew me, if he really knew my heart or what goes through my mind, then he wouldn't love me. Or, yeah, perhaps God loves me at the moment because my performance is all right, but supposing tomorrow I really mess up, I'm going to lose God's love then. Another risky way of thinking about God's love. And so we come on to our third point, which is in deeds. The suffragettes, the women who fought for the right to vote, they had a motto, deeds, not words. They had a sense that words alone weren't going to achieve their goal. And they took what were sometimes pretty violent steps in order to make their point. When it comes to love, we're a bit suspicious of words. We worry that they might prove to be empty. We want deeds, not words, or at least deeds as well as words. Don't just tell me you love me, show me. And that's what God did. A deed done. Violence on display. But it wasn't deeds, not words. It wasn't even deeds, as well as words, it was deeds done by the word, the word made flesh, Jesus. The Bible tells us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Because we were still sinners, fully knowing we were sinners. Christ died for us. 
There's no greater demonstration of love than the cross. Whenever we feel unloved or unlovable, we can turn our thoughts to the cross. Beloved, this is love for you. Active, real, not fading, but solid, faithful, ever-present. Here's the glorious truth. We are held eternally safe and secure in the love of Christ. A love which knows us fully, yet never fades, never lets us down. Of all the emotional security the world has to offer, there is no greater security than this. Nothing compares, nothing comes close. Of all the loves which clamber for our attention and promise to meet our needs, above all other loves, Jesus has the final word. You don't need to struggle anymore. It's a done deal. You are loved. In a moment, we'll come to communion. And today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. There'll be an opportunity for those who'd like to receive some prayer from some of our um, trusted brothers and sisters here. And I would say to you, please don't be robbed of that opportunity. If you feel like God's been speaking to you and you'd really like to receive some prayer, don't let the fear of what other people think prevent you from receiving. But I don't want the focus just to be on the fact that we're having some prayer this morning because communion itself is just a beautiful, precious moment that we have this morning to be able to recognize and remember God's proven, demonstrated love in such a tangible way. So as you come forward this morning, as you receive communion, that can be a beautiful act of receiving afresh God's love for you. So please, I would encourage you to really treat this as a precious time of communion, to be able to engage with God in a, in a really powerful way. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so much for your truth. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that your love isn't dependent on our performance. It depends on your character, which is unchanging. We thank you so much that we can know a sense of security because of your love for us. I pray that you'd really help that truth to go deep within us and to transform us. Bring healing, bring restoration, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.